Welcome to another spontaneous summertime episode of No-Till Flowers with me, Jenny Love. First off, give me an air high five because you have made it to July. Those of us here in the Northern Hemisphere are feeling the heat and the pressure from all the bugs and all the weeds. It's no small feat to do this work that we do, and I see you out there sweating and limping along. You are definitely not alone. So the impetus for this episode is a query I wanted to put out before Ellen Polishuk about making subpar compost a little bit better. As I started thinking ahead to prepping beds for the fall planting season in late September and early October, I anticipate needing a good bit of compost, but the quality I get is so-so. I had um, this idea that I could maybe get it in early and do a little something-something with it to make it better than what I call municipal grade. Maybe you can only get your hands on meh compost too. You'll remember Ellen from some previous delightful chats here on the podcast. She happened to be a compost-making guru for many years, so I knew she was just the person to ask if there was anything that could be done to help. As usual... Ellen and I went down a few unexpected rabbit holes and ended our conversation on a very hard topic, small farmer resilience in the face of staggering weather. We've all been experiencing weather on steroids this season. My own anxiety is rising. How about yours? Ellen, as always, had a smart take on what to do moving forward. So here's hoping you stay hydrated and this chat puts a smile on your face. Yeah, so I'm so excited you were willing to uh, jump on with me again um, and just talk about this meh compost or subpar compost. So here, I'll just set it up for listeners so they know what what this conversation is about. I basically threw a Hail Mary to Ellen here to say, like, help. And I wanted to uh, just record it so everybody could hear it. Um, But my current situation is that I'm preparing um, mentally, not yet actually preparing, but mentally preparing for fall planting at this point. And mostly those are cool flowers, cool annuals. So in the flower farming world, we plant a lot of stuff in the fall. Basically half my field gets planted in the fall. And for that, in preparation for that, I need to have a fair amount of compost at the ready um, to use. Now in years past, I have just gotten compost in right at the time I'm going to make the bed, you know, do the bed flips and use the compost right away um, as soon as it comes in. But based on previous conversations I've had with Ellen and just general observations about my farm and the compost I've been using, I think I can do better than that with a little help, which I'm hoping Ellen's got for me here. <laughs> so, but it, the compost that I get is generally from, uh, well, it is always from, um, It's a composting operation, but it's not necessarily run in a way where they're focusing on nutrition and balance and biology. It's basically a waste management process. They're they're just trying to churn waste, Um, and and that's cool. (laughs) But they it's what I would call municipal grade compost. I'm not actually getting it from the municipality, but it's what I would consider. Um, relatively similar to municipal grade compost. It has been, in theory, aged and screened, but it's not... uh, I just often find myself 
worried about it, <laughs> particularly the really high phosphorus that comes with it. So I have reduced my usage of it. Um, but I'm hoping, Ellen, you can tell me a few things that if I get a load of compost, which I am actually getting tomorrow, um, and let it sit, do something with it. So it's going to have about six to eight weeks for me to finesse it <laughs> and then hopefully it'll be slightly better by the time I put it on. So is this a pipe dream or is this something I can actually do? I think that it's primarily a pipe dream. <sighs> well, so much for this podcast episode. <laughs> uh-huh. I think, I think that the ones, if you, if you were to substantially improve this compost, if you wanted to substantially improve, it, it would require a lot of attention and equipment, which is the same reason why you're not making compost in the first place. Okay. So what are you, what really are your main option, which is the one you already are engaging is time. Mm -hmm. That's what you have. You have time, time is free. Right. And, and so when, when, anytime I'm working with a grower that, that has a similar situation, which is very common, there's not a lot of good compost commercially available. Right. And the compost is usually not done. It's usually really, really woody. It may even still be warm. So the main thing you can do is let it sit. So that's like the bottom line. So get it in enough time that it has a chance to change. Okay. If the compost, the, the place where you're getting it is, and, and the product that you're getting is really woody. It is fairly woody. That's one thing I have a problem with. Yeah. Like sticks. Now the time scale we're talking about is months. Oh, okay. Right? Because imagine, I mean, just what we know now is that the only thing that breaks down wood is fungus. And fungus is takes time. And it takes months. It, and it takes moisture. So the only way to break down wood is time plus fungus plus moisture. And so if you, in a perfect world, I'd say get it in the spring for the fall. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm a little behind the eight ball here. I was planning on getting it earlier, but then, you know, farming. I know. <laughs> I had and a so, lot to do. Yeah, I think you're on the right path. <laughs> okay. If, if wood is what you're worried about, then I'd say give yourself even more time. Okay. Okay. So like, you know, if you wanted to have a lot of compost to put out in the spring, I'd totally get it in September. Okay. So maybe what I should do is get a huge pile right now. We'll use some of it, but then leave the rest. Yes. Okay. So that's, that's your bare minimum, or that's the easiest thing you can do. The next level of what could you do to intersect with this pile is to turn it in some way or disturb it in some way, or, and basically the point is not to disturb it. The point is to make sure or to introduce more oxygen mm, to the pile. Okay. But oxygen is only required if we're going with a bacterial breakdown. Oh, okay. Okay. The fungus, they don't, they can do their own business. They'll deal with it. Um, and so that would mean you have to have a piece of equipment in order to intersect with this pile without killing yourself. Right. Basically. Well, I can't, I do have a tractor with a scoop on it, but I try not to use it too much. But for this scenario, um, I could employ the tractor. Um, won't help others who are listening who don't have a tractor and a scoop, but <laughs> let's go with that for now. Yeah. And so that would be the next step of, of spending now a little bit of time your and your energy uh, intersecting with this compost. And so I would say you don't really want the compost pile to be massively tall. Oh, okay. Good to know. 
if it was done, like the compost was really good and it was finished, I don't care what size I put it in. You would, who cares? Because it's not breathing anymore. It's sleeping. Mm, okay. If your compost is still decomposing and it's still warm and there's still a lot of activity, it means it's still breathing. And that means I'd rather the pile was about four feet tall. Max. Okay. So more of like a windrow kind of situation. More like a windrow. So if you knew that in advance and the truck is coming, then you could say, don't poop it all out in one hunk. Can you drive a little bit as you're dumping the load? Yeah. Can you stretch it out for me? Right. Okay. And then you would just basically like, you know, pick it up on one from one end and dump it into a new windrow and just sort of move the windrow from oh. one area just right next door to it. Okay. Or you could, you could approach if, if I can't have to use my good arm, um, you could approach it from the side and just push it. You know, I'm going to push this back towards my face i'm going to move the whole pile this way yeah so whatever way works for you depending on your space and how your tractor skills and all that stuff okay then another factor is water Mm, okay so if you know there may be a, a situation in which you the the compost that's coming is super duper dry Hmm. Generally it's not this one, but it, other people might have that issue. Yeah. So there may be a situation where you're wishing that you are actually adding some water to it. And the easiest way to do that without proper equipment is to put a drip line on it. It's just, just run some drip tape over the top and drip it in. Oh, I would never have thought of that. If on the other hand, you're, you are getting a perfectly moist compost and you just want to preserve that moisture then I would ask you to put a compost cover on it. Well, like, what does that mean? A compost cover, it's a special piece of cloth. It's like a Gore-Tex jacket for your, for your compost. It's literally, one of the products is actually made by Gore, who <laughs> makes Gore-Tex. So what it means is, is, is that it's a, what's called a spun polyester fiber, uh, and it's, it lets air exchange yeah but water can't get through so your pile would get soaking wet if you had a six two three four five six inch ring right okay okay because that's actually my usual problem with compost is we have had so much rain and we usually do and then it just is kind of like a muddy mess you know it's kind of like a bog over there and I usually think that it's kind of turning anaerobic but I don't have many options so I didn't know that existed compost cover would be is is always a great option. Okay. And do you, does that come in like a roll the way like row cover does or whatever? So, you, okay. All right. So yep. you don't need to it's, order size. Yeah. Okay. I think farm tech sells one. The one I get is super expensive and comes from Switzerland. And oh, you know, mm, fancy. Um, <laughs> so the compost cover is a really important in terms of moisture management and it's keeping weed seeds off. Oh, so now, right? If we're going to start saying time, we're going to do this for some time. Yeah. Okay. Well, now birds and wind and whatever is starting to sort of contaminate your pile. Yeah, I've got mile a minute all over the place right now. That would just hang out on a compost pile. (laughs) Yeah. So, so keeping it covered would be great for that reason as well. Okay. Let me step backwards into the water piece addressing your 
scenario where you're talking about it being a muddy mess. So, and again, you have to take this with a grain of salt and it all depends on your site, but think about putting the compost where it isn't going to be at the bottom of a hill, sort of collecting, you know, runoff. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. And if you could, you would think about having the, the, the link, the way the, the pile runs in the same direction that the water is flowing. So it's parallel with the slope. So it'll just flo- follow the flow instead of hitting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. It's when the water hits it on the side, it tends to soak it all up. And then you're right. It ends up getting to be a, mu- a muddy mess. Wow, I never would have thought of all these little nuances. I'm so glad we're having this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so again, you may or may not be able to pull all, any uh, or all of these things off. Yeah. But you know, each one is one step yeah. A little bit nicer, a little bit better than the step before. But does it help to add anything like rock phosphate or even mycorrhizae or I, I don't know, is there any product assume? I know you always say like time and then there's money and you know how how fast it gets done. It depends on how much money you throw at it. So is there money to be thrown at this or is it just sort of like whatever, you just got to sit and wait? I think that, I mean, certainly rock phosphate is is a great fertilizer if you need phosphorus. Well, but I don't really. I don't, yeah, you don't need it. Yeah. <laughs> the real question becomes, how are you going to mix anything in? And so, I'm again, that's when I get back to, well, if you're really going to mix something in, it would take a lot of intersecting it with a loader, which you don't have time for, and you still would do a really crappy job. So why bother? That's, my, that's kind of my opinion. I love... As, and as a compost maker, I did put rock phosphate in and I put azomite in and I put, you know, it's a, it's a great way to deliver nutrients to the field. But if you can't mix it in, you don't ever want to deliver nutrients in a kind of haphazard fat passion. You know, it's just going to make you crazy later. So there's the, it's the mixing piece that really becomes the stopping place for adding any other amendments. Yeah, no, it makes sense. That's, I mean, that's the number one reason I don't actually make my own compost is like, I do have the loader, but it doesn't feel, I always feel like I'm doing like a, I'm making ruts and I'm, I'm compacting my soil and burning a lot of fossil fuel. And I'm not that good with the loader. Let's be honest. I'm actually really uh-huh. not good with the loader. <laughs> uh, yeah. I hate being on the tractor. So, you know, I just avoid it. And I guess this is my, my conundrum is, is what to do. I guess I just have to find a better compost source, but it's so hard sometimes. And so many of us just don't, you know, there's just so many yeah. farmers that don't have a good compost source. Right. Hmm. There's almost nobody that has a good compost source. And I was, it's, it's funny to prepare for this call. I called my mentor, the guy who taught me how to make compost back in the eighties. Wow. And, um, and he basically said, all the growers that want to have good compost need to put pressure on their sources hmm. and say, I'm willing to spend more money for you to make a better product. Interesting. Interesting. So there is a little bit of a movement of compost sellers having different grades. So they keep the cheap grade that's more mulchy. Yeah, yeah. For home gardeners. (laughs) Yeah. And they're starting to develop a clientele that it's worth it to them to have a, a, a product that is longer in process 
and maybe has some other thing, other ingredients mixed in with it. Oh, that's really a cool idea. Cause that Scott's the guy that makes mine and he's real nice and he's real approachable. And it's yeah. not, it's not that, um, not that he doesn't care I think maybe it is as much you know this like oh well that's another thing to worry about blah 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 you know like something like that yeah but I never really thought about kind of pushing him a little bit harder and saying I'll pay more for it like I was thinking about taking bags of something to him and being like when you're screening my load could you dust it or whatever I don't know if that even makes sense (laughs) while you're screening it I think that's amazing. Yeah. Okay. And, and so if you, you're representing your needs and, and the more you educated him, and I would say, in, instead of pushing, I would say enticing him <laughs> to, to give you the product that you want. Right. Okay. And, and just, and I would say, be as generous as you can from an economic standpoint, because just think, I mean, I don't know how much compost you're buying and what you're putting on, but it's worth a lot to you. It is worth, well, especially, yeah. And I think that's what originally when I first adopted the deep mulch system with the low till, no till, I was dumping a bunch of compost on just thinking like, oh, organic matter. This is great. I'm getting organic matter. I'm so glad I even was under the impression I was getting a lot of nitrogen, which I'm realizing now (laughs) I wasn't getting that much nitrogen, but you know, like I had this, the usual, what I think is the usual conception of compost in a broad, you know, sweep among, um, farmers and gardeners and then over time I was watching it and you were you know you and I were talking and I was just realizing you know there's a difference between um I I don't even know if I want to call it compost the the good stuff you know whatever the good stuff is I don't know what the term is but I could tell how having the good stuff would make such a difference and I wouldn't need to put the volume on you know I was getting like a tractor and trailer load but I don't need a tractor and trailer load I need like a horse trailer load and you know and that would be more than enough if I had the good stuff so exactly if you had a quarter if you had really good stuff you'd need a quarter inch quarter to a half an inch and not one, two or three, you know, and it's interesting you bring this up because I'm working with somebody very, like right down the street, literally 10 minutes away, which is kind of cool. Great. <laughs> and um, he's only in year three and has taken um, a leaf mold product that our county makes. And and some, depending on when you get it, sometimes it's really well aged and pretty broken down. And sometimes it's kind of more like leaf. <laughs> and so he called me in because his plants were not doing well. Mm. And I went and looked and it's basically like there's no soil. There's, the soil is not intersected at all with this leaf mold. And so he's trying to grow in a like there's no structure. Hmm. There's no aggregation. Yeah. There's no... And like water would have a really hard time with that. Like it wouldn't want to yes. like just puddle in certain spots and not drain. Yeah, and... a hard yeah. time keeping it moist. And the plants just basically are look starved. And so it's like, and so basically where we are with this, in this case is I was like, dude, you gotta like put some dirt in there. Like you need to mix it up or add some more soil. And so he's actually bought soil to add to these beds because they were just 100% leaves and it was not working. 
But that's also such an expense. So that's like a, a lesson learned, a hard lesson learned. So the so we are right at the crux of the problem of saying the word compost without having a sort of an understood definition of what compost really is. And I've been fighting this fight for a long time. Yeah, and I feel like in like Europe, you know, European gardeners talk about compost all the time, but to them, that's like potting soil. And it's a different, I mean, they also have compost too, but they refer to two things as compost and they're very different. Like, oh, start your seeds in compost. And you're like, uh, no. <laughs> yeah. I'm not starting so my seeds we really in compost. Are, we're, we're just not speaking with much specificity. Yeah. So what, what would you propose to call good compost? <laughs> well, good compost should be called, I mean, compost should be the good stuff and everything else should be called organic matter. Oh, okay. That's I mean, fair. it's basically a collection of organic matter and in varying degrees of breaking down. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Good point. Yeah. I never really now, thought about if, that. So, so one of the rules of thumb, I would say is, can you tell what it was made of? Hmm. If you can still see what I call parent material, then it has not transformed and it's not done yet. But if you can see, so in my, in my situation, you can see slivers of wood. It's not sticks, but Uh it's kind of like barky compost. Yeah. (laughs) Is that, that's not done enough then. Like you shouldn't see that stickiness, like not stick, uh, barkiness. Yeah. No, it's going to be a nitrogen suck big time. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's what I've been noticing. You know, you know, we've had this conversation about how I can't seem to get enough nitrogen into my field lately. And I, like I said, I mislabored under the idea that this compost was bringing in nitrogen. And now that you just said that, I bet it really has been sucking nitrogen too. So that has been a challenge to say the least. And it does, can do that hydrophobic thing too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've struggled with that. Yeah, hard yeah, to I, wet the place. Yeah. I had to start um, overhead irrigating this year, which I've never, ever, ever done before. Um, but after conversations with you and other growers, and I knew that my compost was hydrophobic on the surface, but I just kept relying on drip tape um, because that's what all flower farmers are brainwashed to do is drip tape, drip tape, drip tape. Um, And I just started putting sprinklers on and I've noticed a tremendous improvement in my plant growth because now they're not stuck with this crust. And it's been, I think the soil biology is really revving up too, because there's no crust. So that's been, thank goodness, at least I discovered that one thing. All to say, it's a learning curve. Yep. It's always that's learning. A, that's a that's a really interesting point about drip irrigation, and I think where we are as a kind of as an industry of intensive growers is putting more and more pieces of tape out because we're not just thinking about I'm just watering this one plant. What about biology? Biology needs water too. So now it's kind of like, oh, actually I want water on the whole bed. The whole bed, exactly. The whole bed. Yes, yes. Which is now four or five, you know, four tapes yeah. to get a whole bed I have, I have five tapes on my beds. They're 36 inches wide and I have five tapes. So every six inches. And um, even that didn't seem to be enough. And and I've just come to the conclusion. I'm just doing it. I mean, slowly but surely, because it's hard to break old habits. I want to do away with drip tape with time. And I may, there may be some downsides to that, but a, an old school grower that I know and respect, actually, he was a podcast um, guest, Joe Schmidt. He oh, made yeah, a good point. Yeah, he's, he's amazing. He made a good point to another grower on, I don't know, 
I don't know where I was with Facebook somewhere. Uh, but his point was, you know, he was a grower. He, he and his family were growers for, you know, generations and, and they didn't use drip tape, you know, like there wasn't drip tape right. 50 years ago, 25 years ago. I don't know when it showed up, but, um, we've all become really, really dependent on it, but that isn't necessarily the way you have to farm, you know, right. like it's a lot of single use or short-term use plastic and a lot of expense. Um, and yeah, I don't know if it's good for soil health. I'm pretty convinced it's not good for soil health, you know? Yeah. So what we, what I did as a vegetable grower is I added more plastic, which was to use, a, to use black plastic mulch. So not landscape cloth, whether it's bio, we, we preferred the bio mulch, but that doesn't go with a certification. Um, in that situation, you could grow two rows of peppers in, in a bed and this is on fairly clay soil, which is, which is important part of the story. And now two tapes and grow the shit out of those peppers. No problem. Because in, in a clay soil, you have a lot of sidewards movement of water. You know, they, there's those pictures you'll yeah, see. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. I'm a little jealous. It's like going straight down. <laughs> yeah. And I think in your system, you're you're making the water go oh, it's it goes much more straight, straight down, down straight than down if you were in the virgin soil that's on your property but if you were in a black plastic where there is maybe it would make a difference i don't know but we we found drip tape worked fine on native soil i think in these this is a new situation this high compost deep yeah. mulch or whatever it's not like farming no other plain old Dirt. No, it's no. And I'm not I'm not convinced that I love it. I, I do think it's been really valuable to my farm. Wow, we're going down a rabbit hole now. But <laughs> I do yeah. think deep mulch has been valuable to my farm because I had tilled so hard for over a decade and the organic matter was just like, you know, it was terrible. Um, I just think I went too heavy on it. You know, I wrote about this on my blog, you know, like I just leaned on it real hard. I read a couple books. I said, this is the way I'm doing it. I didn't know you yet very well. So <laughs> we didn't have our conversations. Um, and I just went whole hog into this one system and it, you know, you should never do anything in excess, no matter what it is. Um, so now this year has really been, um, a year of observation for me and I've really changed my strategy and um, rely a lot more on broad forking and cover cropping to start to try to really churn that that stuff together um, and it's, it's phenomenal the the plant growth this year has been fantastic but what's giving me anxiety is putting more of that compost on and like there's part of me is like do I just skip the compost maybe this is a really good question for you so at this point given what you know about my farm which has had a lot of deep mulch for the listeners We've, I've probably got, I'd say, uh, well, I've got three seasons of mulch or, or compost, co compost-like product on my top of my beds. And I'd say it's a solid two inches that's there kind of continuously now, but we're broad forking, you know, we're, we're in high production, high, like intensive growing. We're at six inch spacing for all our crops. You know, like we've got living roots out the wazoo. Beds are never without living roots in them, like not even for 20 minutes. I'm like m militant about putting stuff in. So my question is, Ellen, should I just start skipping compost? Maybe it's time to just skip it. But I'm kind of like unsure what to do. <laughs> well, what the, you know, the core question is, why would you put it on? 
what is your what's the job i guess i keep thinking organic matt like i keep thinking in my brain i need to really focus on organic matter i gotta make sure that percentage is there like but maybe just the you know root exudates that keep building and the biology living dying living dying maybe i'm maybe it's enough i don't know I can't remember off the top of my head where your percentages were, but they were pretty high. They were high, like four, uh, most were at four and then somewhere I think at six in the hoop house maybe or something. Yeah. So I would say skip it. Yeah. Oh, that feels, that feels like I being know. a bad farmer. Risque. It feels risque. <laughs> it does. Like, ooh. Oh, okay. I'm going to have to wrap my mind around that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, because I, I do remember on your soil test that every single nutrient was like at maximum. Off the charts. Yeah. So you don't need any more nutrients. You have plenty of organic matter. It's cycling. All right. I don't, think you, I don't think you need any, especially if it's a bunch of damn wood chips anyway. Right. Well, that's, I mean, it's definitely not the good stuff. Let's put it that way. So maybe I can, I can talk to my, my, my compost guy and, and encourage him to make me a small batch of the good stuff. Um, and I think I will probably get in, well, it's already on order, so there's a load coming, but <laughs> maybe I'll just let that sit until spring. Yeah, yeah. And then just kind of decide, like, does this seem right? You know, I think that's one thing, which you're always so good at coaching anybody, myself included, to like rethink, uh, you know, just what you've always done. Rethink habits. I guess that's the way of putting it. And And I think you know, this is just a habit I'm in is putting compost down. It feels like this is what you're supposed to do. Um, but maybe that's even another thing to rethink. So I'm really glad you're good at that. Thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Well, yeah. it's, it's, it's a fun job to help people think about these things. Yeah. I enjoy. Yeah. I like it a lot. Hey, before I let you go, if you have one minute to one other rabbit hole question that I did not prepare you for. <laughs> Oh, it's I just, love it. I've just been thinking about this because I laid awake in bed last night in utter anxiety because we had this crazy storm barrel through overnight. I don't know how far up and down the eastern seaboard it went, but oh my God, it was like, it felt like the end of the world was happening. There was like lightning flashes every 10 seconds and booming wow. thunder that shook the house. And this is coupled on top of yesterday, we hit 102 heat index and I had to send my crew home early and I had to go home early. And and here you and I are having this conversation because I can't work outside right now. It's, it's too, too damn hot. So I'm laying in bed and I'm thinking to myself, can I really, can anyone, not me, I'm not, this is not a personal question. This is a question of like, can we really keep farming? Can we still like say this is the trend? You know, what, what do farmers like myself who plan to be in it for another 20 years, what are we going to do? And I felt like I wanted to ask you this, not because you're going to have all the life questions or all the answers to life, <laughs> but more, I guess I wanted to just have the conversation for listeners to hear too. And I know there's got to be a lot of like anxiety among farmers at the moment in general. Um, and also to acknowledge this isn't the usual like midsummer, like hit the wall. Right. I'm so tired because it's really not. I have this amazing crew. We're working hard. We're ahead of schedule and everything. The first July I could ever say that ever at my farm. But I'm I really wonder what how do we have strat or do you know of any you work with so many farmers across the country? Do you have any strategies in mind? Do you think 
can small scale farming survive? Like I want it to, I think it's one of the only answers to this whole freaking problem, but can we really put ourselves in peril? Like with crazy storms and ridiculous heat and poor air quality, like, do we have to be martyrs? <laughs> do we, can we do anything else? Wow, what a question is dumped, wow, dumped question. on you right now. Well, sorry about that. <laughs> well, I mean, so your your question is, is climate change going to make this game, playing this game too risky? risky? Yeah, basically. How do we keep playing this game? Like it, it's, yeah. it's Russian roulette, literally. Like, you know, the other day I had to literally run from my field. Like, cause there was this thing that looked like a tornado coming that was just pelting down. And I was like, what do I do? And you know, that's going to yeah. happen over and it has happened over and over again this season. And I know so many other farmers are feeling the same thing. Like, yeah. what do we do? <laughs> well, there, I think there's a lot of geography intricacies that will come into play. Like um, anybody that's susceptible to flooding it seems like there's going to be a no, there's no other answer than you're going to have to go someplace else. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you have to farm not at the bottom of the hill. Right. Right. Thank God I'm on the uh, top of a hill. <laughs> right. So I think there's, I think that kind of thinking is going to start to, I mean, people are just going to get weeded out. Yeah. We just have to unpack it. I feel like mentally and say yeah. like, okay, like I'm, I'm all in at my property. Like I'm not leaving that place. You're going to have to dig me out of there. But like, if there's newer farmers, maybe listening to this, you know, I feel like there has to be a bit of a, like a farmer migration to the places that make sense to farm. Just don't right. hunker down, even though I'm about, I just said I'm hunkering down, <laughs> but you know, if you're, if maybe if people are new, newer and not so invested in the space that they're in, it's something to really consider to like, yeah, there's go a where, lot of, a lot of different ways to um, try to increase your resilience. And of course, the one that we've talked about the most is, is investing in your soil. So that's going to be resilient to huge rain or no rain, temperature swings, all that other stuff. Yeah. So that's, that's a crucial kind of foundational one, but there's lots of other ways to think about resilience of your business. Mm-hmm. That's and what I'm worried about. <laughs> up this whole other can of worms. One of them is insurance. We're the only farmers in this country that farm without insurance. Yeah. I didn't think about that. There, every other commodity crop farm is all insured. And there is one form of insurance that they created that is not the reason why we none of us got crop insurance before is because they didn't know how to insure arugula and dahlias. Yeah, yeah. But now they created one new product in the last handful of years that you're insuring your gross sales, like the total gross product of your farm. You don't have to know wow. how much was zinnias and what is what is your yield of zinnias compared to the national average, which is how they do corn and soybean. This is just saying it's called whole farm revenue insurance. Writing that down. <laughs> and it, it's starting to, I you know, and it's not gonna be free, just like there is no such thing as free insurance. I think it's really starting to play in. I think it should be a factor that we should investigate for ourselves. So there's that kind of an answer. Then there's, you know, then there's that always that balancing of diversity, right? Don't put all your eggs in one basket. So, but usually 
in this business. People are overly diverse. Right. In in flower farming, we are. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> There's that. Yeah. Uh, so always balancing diversity um, and some balance of, you know, I what I worry about is people that are completely dependent on structures, on growth, on hoop houses. And I think, well, on the one hand, that's making you climate resilient because the rain doesn't come in. Right. But then it's making you so vulnerable. <laughs> right. But if right. you have a snow or you have a hurt, you know, a big ass storm and they all get knocked over. Holy heck, that's a lot of stuff that got squished. I did just get my hoop houses insured for the first time ever. And it wasn't that expensive at all. I'm here to say it was not that expensive. I have insurance through Farm Family. Um, and they um, they insured the structure, but not the plastic. They can also yes. insure the plastic, but that would have been a lot more, um, uh, which I'm like, whatever, I can always, you know, change the plastic. That's no big deal. Right. It's the structure you want. Yeah. Yeah. So that is, um, I think, an easy an easy add to any insurance policy for sure. So, yep. yeah. And most people haven't insured their high tunnels. They may not have even insured their greenhouses. Most farms that are That sounds not, crazy. <laughs> are, most farms are not properly insured. People that are kind of farms, you have to, your, your company that you work with has to know what right. you're doing. What you're doing, yeah. And you need to be really honest with the agent too. I think um, that's one thing that, I don't know why people are so like, catty about like telling their agent exactly what they got but I love my agent and she and I have a conversation once a year she calls me and we go through everything and and it's again it was farm family is the insurance company (laughs) and I uh, I have them too yeah they're great and so she's just like all right here's what we're gonna do and she sends me a policy and I'm like I think I can afford that so we're good to go so basically a tornado could wipe out my barn they'd pay for total rebuild like all that kind of stuff so yeah, I sleep better at night for that. I can just your insurance your insurance agent should be like your priest or your lawyer. They have to know the whole everything. story. Everything. Or you're not or you're I yeah. promise you, you're not properly covered. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. But I still the the only piece of this puzzle that I'm most worried about is farmers just being able to sustain, like us, literally, the the human beings trying to do this work. Because I got this amazing crew, they're all healthy, they're all strong, and we were just wiped out the past two days. Like, we got got nothing left in the tank, and it's sort of like, well, we got a whole season ahead of us. How are we going to do this? And I know all the farmers in, like, the Pacific Northwest that just got bamboozled by all that heat, you know, like, how do we do this? I guess just take up night farming. I, I don't know. How else do we, like... Well, I, yeah, I think you start, I mean, in places in the world where it's consistently hot all the time, their whole society is structured on a different time scale, right? You close down in the middle of the day. You, you would work from 6 to noon, and either call it a day or come back at five or four thirty and, and put in another two hours, which is technically very difficult to pull off when people are commuting. Right. Well, that's the thing. I do that personally because I'm the owner and I'm gonna do it, but I can't ask my crew to come back for two hours in the evening. So right. yeah. And so you means you have to get all your work done in less time. So that means having a smaller, a bigger crew. A bigger crew, but shorter hours, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Hmm. And, and another piece of resilience for small farmers with this crazy weather in mind is having redundant sets of tools so that 
if like the moment, the moment when doing a bunch of different farm jobs is getting, the window is getting smaller. Oh, it's the funnel. That's the funnel. It's the thing that stops. You have to be able to act. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. The people and the equipment and all this stuff, and it all needs to work for that exact window of opportunity because tomorrow it's going to rain and you missed it. Right. Okay. So maybe you need like two broad forks instead of one because that yes. will speed up the process. I get it. Yes. Now. Got it. Got or it. Got two it. tractors or two somethings. You know, a little bit of redundancy. It's like the opposite of the lean farm. Right. <laughs> In a way, although he's big on buying lots of hand tools and putting them everywhere. Right. 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 Exactly. But I'm talking about some expensive, even expensive tools. And that could be also true with people, a redundancy of people. That's always a resiliency tactic for running your, keeping your business healthy is that what would happen if you were sick? Amen to that. Is going to fall apart? Yeah. No, I, I overstaffed slightly this year. Um, yeah. And it's been like the best decision I've ever made. You know, I just basically have an extra eight hour, eight man, eight woman hours, whatever you want to say, eight hours of help that I wouldn't normally have budgeted into my crew, um, for the season per week, you know? Um, and it means we're constantly on top of the to-do list, which is really, really like wonderful. (laughs) But it also means that I feel like if one of us goes down, God forbid, you know, then we're not utterly screwed, which I used to run such a lean crew that it was like, we were to the like five minute mark, like, God, we gotta get all this done. (laughs) Yeah. So that that's been a big eye opener for me this year. So yeah, yeah, slowly learning a little bit at a time. <laughs> that's the only way we can. We can't learn in big hunks. <sighs> really? I don't know, man. I want my brain to take it all in and just be done with this. But no, it's okay. I actually love learning. And that's part of this podcast has just yes. been so much fun to learn from people like you. And I'm so grateful for all your insight, your mentorship, your friendship, and just your, you know, authentic heart that you always bring to these conversations. So thank you for that. I know this is going to be helpful to a lot of people if only to have a little like commiseration in their ear while they're working in these really hot days. Yes. <laughs> so you are well, not alone you. out there, people. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. It's it's always fun to talk with you, Jenny. Definitely. Thanks, Ellen. Today's episode of No-Till Flowers was produced by Ginny Love of Love and Fresh Flowers with support from No-Till Growers. Special thank you to Nikolai Fox for the theme music, at Nikolai Fox on Instagram. Thank you to the Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash no-till growers for making this show possible. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you are getting it and leave a review. That always helps us out. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode of No-Till Flowers. It's so hot. That's why I came home because I was like, ugh, I'm not even going to try. I was dying out there. And I got stung by bald-faced hornets today. I got like five stings and my whole body's kind of like swelling up. <laughs> so I figured I'd just stay inside. Uh, it's all right. It's all right. So...